0: amen let's pray father we do bring you all the praise and glory I know we like to claim it for ourselves and we like to set ourselves on pedestals and uh, shine bright lights on ourselves but God it's all to you Uh, you've done everything and we bring you nothing and that's enough because we have freedom in Christ through grace. And so we praise you. God, as we now consider your word, we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts, have your way in our church, Lord, that we might submit ourselves now to your authority. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for that. A couple weeks ago, we began studying through the book of Philippians, which is a letter written by Paul to the church at Philippi. You should know that by now. Paul is probably writing about 10 years after he first visited the city of Philippi, which is a Roman colony in an area that's now northern Greece, known then as Macedonia. And he is most likely writing from Rome, where he is residing in a prison, and the circumstances of his life uh, speak to something different, but what we see in the letter is that there's this theme of undeniable joy. And his circumstances have him in inescapable chains, yet the letter indicates the state of Paul's uh, soul is uh, one of inescapable joy. So Paul opens the letter by explaining the situation he's facing in Rome, kind of talks about what he's dealing with uh, there. Then he turns to exhortation towards unity that uh, we looked at pretty closely last week. Now, one of the reasons he was encouraging unity among the Philippians is because he saw what disunity looked like in Rome. In the Roman church, it was, just, it, it was very poor as far as unity. So he was saying, you've got to defend against this. He also was aware that inside of the Philippian church, there was some division. So he's writing to them about this unity, exhorting them towards that. So he continues that now, and we're going to be looking at that in the passage that we studied this morning. Last week we read the first uh, part of Philippians 2. And in that first part, Paul describes the story of Christ's self-emptying and ultimate exaltation. He writes in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, made him, uh, but emptied himself, or made himself nothing. Nothing. And then he goes on to describe in detail how he empties himself, how he humiliates himself, and then how that leads to exaltation. It's a vindication for Jesus. And now Paul applies Christ's example to the Philippian experience. That's what he's going to do in the verses we look at today. And so he begins verse 12 with these words, so then. He is saying in light of what Jesus has done, what he's demonstrated, the example he offers us, And then he goes on to say what we should do. And so I'm going to read to you Philippians 2, verses 12 through 16. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain." Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, prove your salvation by living in a distinctly Christian manner, which will be as light to a watching world. And the idea that I believe the scripture is proposing today, that I want us to really focus in on, is that God, who is working in you, should be visible to the people around you. God, who is working in you, should be visible to the people who are around you. So you think, well, how can that happen? How can an unseen God be made visible to the people that I interact with? Well, I think the scripture here kind of proposes that God is visible when you, as a child of God, live your life, number one, without grumbling, number two, above reproach, and number three, according to the gospel. So let's start with the That first point, live without grumbling. How many of you need to hear this message this morning? Uh, Some of you, you don't have to volunteer it. I see a couple hands, I hear you. How many of you want to escape before we get to conviction, right? You're like, do I really want to hear this today? Uh, So how's it going so far? You woke up on a Sunday, you're here, or maybe you're joining us by television. How's the idea of grumbling going right now? I kind of want to escape myself, but let's, let's take for a moment here and consider what Paul is saying. In verse 12, Paul first exhorts the believers towards obedience. He's saying, let people see your obedience. In fact, Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do we say we love you to Jesus? By obeying. And that's Paul's point here. Paul is saying whether I'm with you or whether I'm away from you, let obedience continue to be a characteristic that people recognize in you. Then he offers a command that's a little theologically challenging. Because we believe that justification comes by faith and not by works. But Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so we say, well, what does he mean here? Is Paul proposing that our salvation comes by work? Well, he's not said that before. That's not what uh, other letters that he's written or other verses that he's written has indicated. So what's he saying? Let's see if we can unpack this phrase to really understand what he means here. First of all, Paul did speak about salvation in a couple of different ways. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So Paul believes that salvation comes by grace as a gift. It's not earned. But you'll notice in, verse, in Ephesians 2.8, he says, for by grace you have been saved. So that's in the past tense. He's talking about something that's previously happened in the life of the believer. But he doesn't stop there. In Romans 13.11, at the end of that verse, he says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Once again, Paul's writing to believers, but he's talking about something in the future. Salvation that's coming in the future. He saw it as an event reserved for the day of the Lord's return. When we see him. When the end of time comes. So, he uses the word salvation in different ways. We know he used it as reference salvation as a past event. He also used it as a future consummation for believers. So, what about in this verse? What's Paul talking about? Well, he's writing in the present tense. And the context around this phrase is in regards to the evidence of our salvation. Paul is saying, live in accord with your salvation. Live what you believe. Don't just say it. Live it. Live in obedience. Not to Paul, even though his presence seemed to encourage their obedience. That's kind of what we tell from this verse. But he's saying, even when I'm not there, live in obedience to Christ. Now, he's not simply saying this to a group. We know he wrote to a group. He's writing to the church at Philippi. He's very specific that he was writing to at the very beginning, uh, both to the leaders there as well as the laymen. So it's to all of them. And he's not saying just generally as a group, you know, live in obedience to Christ or work out your salvation. He's, He's speaking to the individual here. Each individual is to work out their salvation. If each individual does what he or she is supposed to do as a follower of Jesus, then all the group issues are minimized. Unity becomes possible. So let right living begin with me. That's the idea, you know. Lord, send a revival, let it begin in me. And so where do you start? If it's going to come to right living inside the group, it starts with me when I get it first. And he says to do so with fear and trembling. Well, there's truth to the statement That God calls us as his friend. But we are to work out our salvation or live in a way that there is evidence that we are children of God with fear and trembling. Or as those who know what it's like to stand in awe of the Lord. We are not just called into a formal relationship with the Lord. He does call, we have friendship with him. But we never lose sight of the fact that we are in relationship with God Almighty who has all power, all might, all strength, and we are but dust that he's just simply breathed on. That's how we identify with the Lord. Now we can get so focused on verse 12 that we miss the context that's provided to it by verse 13. It says we're called to work out our salvation, but God is the one who's working on the inside in order that we might live that way. The idea is that we work out as God works in. And he not only provides the motivation, he gives us the motivation to do it. He also gives us the ability to do it. That's what he's doing on the inside. So that we might live in obedience to him and his commands. Now there's a shift as we come to the main point or the main thrust of this point in the sermon. Paul goes from general comments in verse 12 and 13 to a specific command in verse 14. Some of you are going to think that Wes has gone from preaching to meddling. When we turn to this verse, it's okay when I speak up here, but now I'm going to get real down into the middle of your life. All right. Now, remember, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. This sitting not Wes <laughs> arguing with you. Okay. Paul gives this positive command framed in a negative way. Philippians two fourteen. do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I don't know all of you, but I wonder if you're a little bit like me. You read that and you think, does he mean all things? You know, what what does the Greek say there? Does it really say all things? I I mean, he just means in the important things or those things that really make it. Not in all things. I hate to tell you, I looked it up, okay? And all things in the Greek, the words that are used there are defined as the totality of any object, mass, collective, or extension. All things means all things. There was evidently a specific issue in the Philippian church, because, uh, and it was between a couple of women there, named Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know what issue they had between themselves, but we know it was notable enough that Paul records in his letter for all 2,000 years of church history to take note of. In Philippians 4-2, Paul writes, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So perhaps when he's talking about the grumbling and the arguing or the disputing to cut out, maybe he's speaking about this issue because maybe people were taking sides. I don't know. What we do know is Paul did not mean that we're not to confront or admonish because he does that in this verse. As members of one body, we are called to correct one another. That's not grumbling. Paul is referring to grumbling, complaining, arguing, all that stuff that you know about. It is all, all of it, that stuff is toxic. It ruins unity. So the admonition is to cut it out, to take note of it, to get rid of it, to not tolerate it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this word grumbling only occurs a few times in the New Testament. But if you search the Old Testament narratives, you will find it very frequently. Because the Hebrew chid- children were known as complainers. And Moses had to put up with it. And it drove him crazy. He couldn't stand it. Forty years in the wilderness. And they just complained about everything. One record of it, Numbers 11.1, 1, says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, heard their complaints, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So, what does God think about disputing and complaining and arguing? It evidently lit a fire in him that actually burned part of the camp of the Hebrew children. Probably some people. And we know the tents, those things that were there. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's what God thinks about grumbling and complaining. In another part of the New Testament, Paul points to that kind of response by God and says in 1 Corinthians 10:10 10, 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. That's not a verse many people memorize, I don't think. It's really descriptive, isn't it? I'm going to plan on teaching my children that one this week, you know. <laughs> Kids that grumble get a visit from the destroying angel. I just thought it's biblical, right? But the point is that God takes offense to grumbling. And ultimately, grumbling tears apart a body of believers. That's what happens. I believe that there is no quicker path to disunity in the church and among Christians than through grumbling. It's the quickest path to get there. It's contagious, it's destructive, and let's be honest, it's no fun. You hate being around it. Sometimes you know you're grumbling and you hate being around yourself because it's just no fun. There's no joy that comes from grumbling. And we all know what it's like because we've experienced it, the folks around us and our own selves. So I thought I would issue a challenge today. Here's where we start meddling, okay? I want to challenge all of us to make tomorrow a day of no grumbling. Do you think you can do it? 24 hours of no complaining, no grumbling. Maybe see what God might do in your heart if you can just cut it out of your life. So maybe if you're willing, you might just sign on to the bulletin. I'm I'm taking the commitment, whatever it is. So what this means is, is uh, and, and remember, tomorrow's Monday. There's extra grumbles for Monday, right? <laughs> so this means when the alarm goes off in the morning, or in our house, or our case, it's when the kids go off in the morning, no grumbling. All of a sudden, when you make it to the mirror, you look at yourself, no grumbling. You get in the car, doesn't matter the condition of the car, no grumbling. You get out to Malfunction Junction, no grumbling. No grumbling. Your computer gives you trouble at work or school or wherever you are, no grumbling. Your phone drops calls. Telemarketers Telemark- call you even though you're on the do not call list. <laughs> Cranky neighbors, classmates, coworkers, all of a sudden walk into your path. Teachers make assignments that you were hoping they wouldn't make. Or the pop quiz shows up you weren't expecting. Somebody misses their appointment, you go out to eat, the service is bad. No grumbling. You think you can do it. Well, here's how you do it. You have to let gratitude rule in your heart. Because grumbling is a direct reflection of a problem with ingratitude. You think you deserve better. Or you think you've, not, you've gotten the raw end of the deal. Or you think you're entitled to something more. So you just grumble about it. You complain to whoever will listen. But let's just be honest. In the scriptures, their complaint was to God. Ultimately, they might have said it to Moses, but it was to God. Well, it's the same thing for us. It's what the Israelites did. It's what you and I are doing. So we are commanded to do all things without grumbling. And let's just start with one day and see how it affects us. And here's the idea. God is visible when you, as a child of God, live your life without grumbling. So what a great motivation. People might see Jesus in you. So God is also made visible in our life when we live above reproach. Uh, Paul says to the church at Philippi, do all things without grumbling. And then in verse 15, he says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. The idea is to work out your salvation as God is working on the inside, live in a distinctly Christian uh, manner, by the way you don't grumble or the way you interact with folks, to prove who you are. Or more specifically, Paul says, whose you are. See, Paul is not saying so that you can be a child of God, live this way. He says because you are a child of God, live this way. This is your job as Christian, to let people see Jesus alive in you. Not just that you kind of give a nod to the Lord occasionally, not just that you, know, you, you acknowledge Jesus in a song or in prayer, but that he's alive in you, that he's working in you. That he's bearing fruit so that when you walk into conflict, you're a different person than whenever he's not alive in you. That's what he's saying here. The problem is that we like to cover him up by self-centered living. But our job is to make sure that people see him by the way we live. So Paul says the comparison to our lives as God's children is a crooked and perverse generation. This harkens back to the generation of Moses as a direct quote. Moses says they are a crooked and perverse generation. That's the arena in which the Philippians live, and let's be honest, it's the arena that we live in. Don't you think as children of God, we ought to be easily identifiable in an arena full of wickedness? The problem is that we have become conditioned into thinking that right Christian living means that we're just supposed to blend in, to not stand out. You know, to kind of be moderate, not too wicked, not too righteous. Revelation calls this lukewarm. You are neither hot nor cold. You just blend in. But Paul says we're to be above reproach. And he uses the imagery of lights in the world. Stars. Paul is saying, Christians in Philippi, you are to be like stars in the city. Bright lights, a noticeable and distinct glow for the community. And in this illustration, Paul is reaching back to prophecy from Daniel. See, Daniel is talking about the end of time, the consummation of all things, the salvation of God's people, and he says in Daniel 12, 1 through 3, Now at that time... Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And here's where Paul's looking at. Verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly Like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul had the end of time in mind when he's writing to the Philippians. He was fully expecting that Jesus might return today. And he's exhorting the Philippians, think the same way. And folks, we should have it in mind as well. It could be today. The sky might crack. The trumpet might sound. Jesus might return. And I think if we think of that, it brings the best out in us. Do you know why? Because we live as if Christ is returning. And the model for our lives is these who Daniel says were shining like bright stars. We look at the stars today because they're beautiful or maybe we want to see the constellations. But in the ancient world, the stars provided insight for navigation or maybe a way to uh, date things, to measure time and generations. Do you know why they did that? Because the stars are stable. They're trustworthy. Christians living above reproach are needed to provide something stable. Something trustworthy. A straight model for crooked living. The church should be an example of right living, not wrong living. That's why unity is so important. I really struggled writing the sermon. Because the last thing I want is for you to walk out of here feeling this inappropriate burden on your shoulders to live a perfect life. That is not what the Christian life is about. Our Christian walk should not drive us to live like Pharisees. We're not to shine so that other people can be impressed with us. We're not to do good deeds because we believe that our righteous deeds earn good favor for us before Jesus. That's not what the Christian life is about. We should not be driven to make ourselves look better than we really are, to cover up the flaws. I believe as Christians we appear as lights even with the imperfections we have, sometimes because of the imperfections we have. Our blemished lives still serve as a beacon to point folks to the Lord. As we work out our salvation and mess it up, it shows that Jesus is on the inside, Applying grace, filling in the gaps, working in us as we work out. So living above reproach means we are also honest about ourselves. We don't try to take more credit than we deserve. We don't pretend to have it all together. Above reproach means I'm honest that at any moment I am absolutely desperate for the grace of God. My righteous deeds are like filthiness before him. Even on my best day, I got no chance to come before the Lord without the righteous robes of Jesus that I received by faith. But how good that He doesn't demand more of us than we can give. He only asks that I receive the gift of grace that He offers by placing my, my life in His hands. Is that what people see when they look at you? God is made visible. When we live above reproach, God is seen in our actions, our attitudes and interactions. God is also made visible when we live according to the gospel. In verse 16, he writes, Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Gordon Fee, a commentator, says, Although the believer's role in Philippi puts them in strong contrast to the paganism of Philippi, By holding fast the word of life, they are to offer the life that Christ provides to those who are dying. We don't hold fast to it to keep it away from other folks. We hold fast so we can offer it. And we don't offer self-righteousness to a watching world. We don't offer religion or tradition or customs. We give them Jesus. That's what we offer. Grace by faith. So God is visible in our lives when we make the good news that Jesus has come, our pitch. That's what we bring to the table. And it really is a lifeline, because as Gordon Fee says, folks are dying without Jesus. In this verse, Paul is still looking forward to the day of Christ's return. And he's saying, may it be that when that day arrives, my work among you will not be in vain. That I might glory in the fact that Christ." People, the mature body of believers at Philippi endured on that day. And he offers this illustration of having not run in vain. Paul's been running a race. And he's endured a lot for it. He even endured a lot for Philippi. He was arrested there. He was beaten. He was put in stocks in the inner cell of the jail. He was, had a little uh, uh, um, a trial. He was run out of town. Then he went from there. He was beaten, persecuted shipwrecked, left for dead, and now he's imprisoned in Rome. Do you think that at some point he ever looked around and thought, am I on the right track? (laughs) God, I thought that living for you might be a little bit easier, you know? Do you think he ever said, you know, this course is just a little bit unreasonably difficult? Do you think he might have wondered, maybe God's trying to get my attention and I'm, I'm going a little bit too far off here and he's trying to get me back on track. He didn't want to run in vain. He felt like I'm enduring a lot. And I want to make sure it's not in vain. So there's temporary happiness in running a course that may not have eternal value. But only the true course of Christian living brings about the inescapable joy that Paul knew and experienced. Sometimes I wonder if I have settled for lesser joys in the race I'm running for Christ. Am I saying, God, I'll run for you, but I kind of want to keep it between the rails of comfortable living. See, I think God wants more from us than just reading the Bible on occasion, staying involved in church, of setting aside time for prayer before meals. He wants to permeate your life. He wants others to see Jesus in you. He wants this in our church too, not that we just gather for traditional singing and maybe a considering of the Bible, but that we engage in true worship and let the Word of God correct the way we're living that we demonstrate unity in our interactions with one another and allow God to receive the glory and live our lives for the sake of others and let people recognize we love God, we love others, and we are engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission. So Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's recognizing his life is coming to an end. Verse 17 and 18, Paul writes, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He's saying, even if my life is coming to an end now, I still rejoice. It's that theme that's coming out. He says, You too. See, Paul was focused on eternity. He was able to have joy through his circumstances because true joy is not superficial happiness. True joy is a settled sense of peace in spite of circumstances. So Paul can be joyful as his demise approaches because he has true joy rooted in a life lived for the sake of the gospel. So the hidden God who is at work in your life is made visible visible when you as a child of God live your life according to the gospel. So in conclusion, the God who is working in you should be visible to the people around you. If you're a believer, is Jesus visible in your life? Do people take note of the Lord at work in your heart because they see the way you live? They recognize you don't grumble, whatever it might be. They recognize that you're uh, bringing glory to the Lord, that you're living for the sake of the gospel. Well, I'd say, let's just practice. Let's take tomorrow and let's just take one day and see what God might do in our life and in the lives of those around us where we say, Lord, I want to do it. Stake in the ground, I want to do it. If you're here as a seeker today and you're not a child of God, I want you to know that Jesus is pursuing you. He wants nothing more than to be in relationship with you. And he says, come just as you are. He's got all the righteousness you need. And he offers forgiveness to you freely through his death on the cross and gives you hope of eternal life through his resurrection. So to today, if Jesus is speaking to your heart, would you simply say yes? All it is is receiving him and believing in his name. An old hymn says... Let others see Jesus in you. Let others see Jesus in you. Keep telling the story. Be faithful and true. Let others see Jesus in you. The God who is at work in you is calling you to live in harmony with him. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the word. You've got commands that really speak to the need of our heart. But God, you also offer us the hope that we might have forgiveness and we might have right standing before you the relationship with Jesus. God, as we come now to respond, I pray that you would have your way in our heart and our lives, that we might say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, I'll be down front. Maybe it's to come and join the church, follow in Believer's Baptism. Maybe it's to respond to the gospel. If God's speaking today, you respond. I'm going to ask you to stand. As our choir sings, I'll be waiting down front.